back to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. This episode is the second part of our behind-the-scenes look at John Carpenter's The Thing. If you haven't already listened to the previous episode, which was the first episode of the current season, season six, I'd recommend you stop now and start with that one instead. Just in case you've taken a break between episodes, let's reintroduce our guests. First, Bruce Humphrey. You're currently working as a first assistant director, but you were the DGA trainee on The Thing. Welcome back. Thank you, Skid. Next, Dave Kelsey. You were with the special makeup effects team and credited as the mechanical animation coordinator. That's correct. Thank you very much. And Ken Diaz, you are also with the special makeup effects team and credited as the special makeup effects coordinator. That's correct. Thank you. And finally, we're joined by the director of photography, Dean Cundy. Oh, thank you very much for this opportunity to try to remember stuff. <laughs> well, you guys have been doing great so far. And let's pick up where we left off. We were talking about the thing. We've gone through pre-production and preparation for the creatures. You've already shot a couple of weeks in Alaska of the opening sequence. Now we're back at Universal. We're on the stage and we're discussing the creature effects, particularly the sequences that needed to be done where there's interactions back and forth with the actors. Let's talk about the Norris sequence. Ken, can you take a minute or so to remind listeners the extended sequence we're discussing here? Yes, we're doing the uh, Norris effects sequence, which is an iconic sequence in makeup effects. It starts off with Norris on a table. He's having some difficulty, and the, uh, Dr. Cooper comes up with defibrillators and presses on his chest. His chest rips open, exposing some sharp teeth that clamp down on his arms. We see the tearing of the arms. Then we see a uh, mechanical chest kind of effect open up. Or we see like a fountain spray and we see something shoot up to the duck. A miniature Norris with big fangs hanging onto the ductwork That is burned up with uh, the McCready character that falls to the floor. Then the Norris head starts to stretch and some gooey stuff starts gurgling and popping as the head stretches off the body. It slides down the desk, flops onto the floor. A tongue shoots out. The tongue pulls the head under a desk. Some eye stalks and spider legs pop out of this head that's upside down. And then it peeks out. And then it, it starts to run out of the room with the spider legs powering it. And um, the Creedy character sees it and burns it up with a flamethrower. So that's the sequence in it in a hole. <laughs> that was all, that was all uh, shot in about, uh, oh, what, Ken? 20, 30 minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a wonder to me. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dean, to your point earlier, all of this came together on the storyboards. And it sounds like a specific example of where we're going to just draw it to the best of our imagination, and we're gonna let we're gonna let everybody else figure out how to actually get it done. To me, it's one of the most impressive sequences because it was made up of so many moments, elements, um, different types of makeup effects and, and creature effects. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but that's what our work is. A lot of times, fun. Um, we're very fortunate that way. So it's um, it was fascinating because they were meticulous shots because each time uh, there was an effect and then we would have to set up and they would bring in the next part of the creature effects and um, we would shoot that. What was handy is that we had Mike Plug's storyboards to go by um, to guide us to, to the intention of the shot and the intention of the creature effect. 
you know, it's like what we do. We, we make jigsaw puzzles, uh, little bits and pieces of stuff that, um, you know, the editor puts together and we think it happens all in one event as an audience. Yet it was over, I don't know, a period of probably a week or so. It's one of those sequences, I think, that really demonstrates the creativity of the makeup effects, the challenge of putting them all together into a cohesive sequence, and the reward, looking at it later, to realize it's one of the iconic sequences, as you point out, in in the whole movie. I recall when we were shooting uh, a portion of that sequence, this was after the main principal photography when we were doing some second unit, insert unit stuff at Universal Heartland, doing the CPR and the uh, defibrillator on Norris when the chest bursts open and Dr. Copper's arms are bitten off. We actually shot with a amputee double for Richard Dysart, who played Dr. Copper, so that we could have the real actor there at the beginning of the sequence. And then when the chest opens and takes his arms off, as the doctor pulls back, recoils from that, we actually see that he's missing his arms from, you know, the elbows down. That was uh, pretty amazing. And again, at the time, was the only way you could do something like that versus now where they can digitally removed limbs and things like that. On the first part of that, we had the um, uh, gelatin arms that go into the, uh, into the cavity to get clamped down on. And the, uh, the shot that's in the film is, the, is take one. Rob asked, he wanted to do one more take. So we went and we had two sets of arms. So like, on the second set of arms, uh, I believe John was on V camera, if I'm not mistaken. That one, they clamped down and they held the arms longer. And I, I gave me... Uh, more time to, to twist and turn and rip the flesh. And John, I remember his comment is, oh my gosh, because that first take was a hard R. This one's an X. <laughs> 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 and I, I had some concerns. I said, John, you know what? I just, I worked on my bloody Valentine just recently. And um, all of the effects, the sensors cut all of that stuff out. So I really don't know how you're going to get this in the film. He says, I'll get it in. I don't know if this is true, but I heard later he told me the, uh, the cut that he submitted to the censors uh, had the clamping of the arms, but not the ripping of the arms. <laughs> that was added later <laughs> for the general release. Well, let's break down some of the other really fantastic work that went into the various elements on this sequence. So the first part, Charlie is harnessed in, and he has a fake chest cavity that's applied to him, and it highly detailed with uh, chest hair that matches his hair. Uh, all that work was done with Margaret Bracera. We had some uh, some rough edges to blend off of, of below his uh, his neck area, and that's where Dean helped out and put some shadows in that area to make it totally believable. I think that's the sequence in the movie that people comment about. Number one, it's uh, I was in a theater watching that movie uh, in the early days of its release, and uh, it was someplace in uh, I think West L.A theater in West LA uh, when that sequence got through there were people standing up applauding screaming and yelling <laughs> I mean uh, it was an amazing display I'm sure there were a lot of UCLA students in there and and they were just uh, having the time of the of their life watching this yeah that um, that sequence um, I know it had to be a one taker 
like I said before, our job is to take things and move them. Anything that the practical effects people do is to move things, move things that are normal in an abnormal way. Oh, let's just say if a door is opening and closing, well, that's, that's uh, something that moves. If an actor has got their hands on it, they do it. If they can't have their hands on it, we would do it. If that door starts to breathe, we would do that because it's moving. Same thing back on the Nora sequence. Uh, all that beautiful makeup work was just outstanding. But to make it real, uh, we had actually a um, hydraulic ram in that chest and to break open those ribs and clamp back down because we wanted to rip that flesh. Oh, then when things went up to the, uh, Ken mentioned the duct, it was an air conditioning duct that was overhead where the small uh, Norris creature was up there. I, th I think Alien sort of stole that scene a little bit uh, later on, right, Ken? Exactly <laughs> so. <laughs> anyway, we actually had, as Ken mentioned, a guy inside of the duct up there, and he was pulling on things and wires and everything, and the head slides off the table, hits the floor, uh, and it travels. And so that traveling of the head was on a, uh, a table, an elevated table that was covered with floor tile to match the floor, the original floor. And uh, we cut a small, very small slit in the tile. And we had a small, like a little shark's fin, we'll call it. And that was being pulled along underneath on a track you never saw that because like Dean's lighting, you know, just a, a little a finger, various little tools are used to hide things or, or, or uh, make them more obvious. Anyway, um, I remember when that head finally exits all of its legs and starts going down the hallway and then turns around and gets burned. It was quite a, uh, quite a finish for that sequence. And, uh, one of our guys uh, had radio-controlled motors and arms uh, in that head to make it walk, and we were pulling it on a wire. It was we were pretty pretty happy with that sequence, and that seems to be the sequence that most people talk about. Hey, how'd they do this, and how'd they do that? And that head was coming, and this it was it was elaborate, no doubt about it. Very often, if you're doing innovative things like these guys were doing. Uh, you show up and um, it would be described to you and you'd say, we're going we're gonna to do what? Because it was all brand new. Now you show up and the computer guy says, yeah, we're going to do this and that. And you say, oh, okay, because you just realized that um, it's been done a lot before. In those days, in the days of the thing, these guys were doing such innovative work that uh, it was new to all of us, and, and as a result, uh, you know, it was such an, a, a creative inspiration. So much of the digital work now, it's very repetitive, and uh, there's all these different softwares that they have. I say this, if you've seen one Marvel movie, you've seen them all. Uh, we've seen all the transforming robots ripping New York buildings apart. Uh, we've seen 10,000 marching uh, pine trees coming down them. I mean, it's just on and on and on. And I just, there's something magic about, well, like, if you really want to have a good movie, have a good script. It's the same thing if you want to have something that's real that people can believe in. The practical stuff, it seems to carry over 
One of the technical challenge I want to talk about for the head stretching on Mike's, uh, Mike Plew's uh, storyboards, when the head was stretching, there was like popping of bubbles and stuff. We had worked for quite a while trying to figure out how to achieve that stretching effect. We had bought boxes and boxes of bubble yum, and we had done a lot of other experimentation. Initially, I mean, the, we finally came up uh, with uh, some vinyl. There was this little product you could buy in a tube, and you kind of squirt it out and put it on a straw, and you could blow bubbles with it. And that's, oh, let's try to achieve that. So we'd done some research and figured out how to uh, get some vinyl powder that you thin out and make this gooey stuff with acetone. Okay, so we're going to add this gooey stuff, and we uh, trying to avoid the X rating of this head stretching thing. Rob suggested that we go in with more fantasy fantasy colors, so we ended up going with a uh, opaque green and a translucent green, opaque yellow and a translucent yellow, and we rigged them. We filled up this gooey stuff, this liquid vinyl, in the fire extinguishers and cut little oval shape cuts into the vinyl tubing, and as the head was going to stretch off we were going to squirt these, this liquid vinyl into these tubes and form these bubbles that would pop on camera. So we also included some, um, some netty barnacle uh, textured foam latex that was going, to be, was going to also get stretched and broken as, as the head peeled off. So we're all, we've rigged the, the thing. The, the, the piece looks amazing. The paint job's amazing. Dean's coming and lit this beautifully. So we're getting ready to roll. I'm standing at the end of this, uh, this uh, Charlie body, and I'm gonna be shoving the, the tubes and the uh, stretchy latex into the body as, to keep, as the heads keep stretching, I'll keep feeding this. Well, uh, that's when John Carpenter said, hey guys, I remember that there's a, the duck monster has been on fire and has hit the ground, so maybe we should have some uh, flame underneath. I went, oh, yeah, okay, sure. So I believe uh, Danny Gill went and got some copper tubing, drilled some holes, pinched off the end, hooked it up to a, uh, to a propane tank, and uh, we're getting ready to go. And I asked for a motorcycle helmet because I had a kind of a fro going on back there, and I, and I was too close to that frame bar. So I put on a motorcycle helmet, and here we go, guys. So we fed the, the uh, liquid vinyl again from the guys in the fire extinguishers. Everything's primed. Puppeteers are ready. Okay, here we go. And Danny lit the flame bar. And all of a sudden, vroom, this is, there is this blue halo flame surrounding the body. <laughs> and you hear the sizzling of the, hes- the chest hairs <laughs> just burning up. <laughs> and Rob, says, Rob steps and goes, it's on fire. <laughs> and I just took my hand and swiped across the chest. And uh, it just left this charcoal of all the, uh, all the burnt chest hair across the chest. And uh, oh my goodness, John says, okay, um, okay, well, how long before we can set up go? And I said, we can't go till tomorrow. What? We have to put a whole new skin on this thing. So yeah, we have to uh, completely reskin that thing and, and set it up for the following day. Oh man, that much work. And then, so uh, Bruce, something like that happens on set. And I don't even remember that specific, but uh, what do you try to do instead? You know, I don't recall uh, what we did or if we just went home early that day. Uh, we probably had some other coverage that we could do, reactions and that sort of thing. What I was going to say uh, before with Ken is that, again, and like Dave said, having a real thing in the set happening in front of the camera 
it just gives it such a, a realism and I think a much stronger reaction from the actors in the scene because they are witnessing the same thing that uh, we're showing to the audience. Let's move on and talk about another sequence that the actors are very involved in and that's where we're doing the blood tests. The crew is now aware that the thing is amongst them but they're not sure who may have been replaced. So they take a little bit of blood from everyone and they're testing them one at a time and chaos ensues. Well, that, once again, a combination of, of uh, Ken's department, my department, that's a pretty great scene actually. Uh, I, I, I really like that scene. <laughs> and uh, when uh, Kurt puts in uh, this, was it like a hot wire, wasn't it? In the Petri dish. And so we had uh, uh, Ken's guys sculpted it up and molded and cast a, a little character, a balloon character type thing and in this bloody little Petri dish, and we uh, introduced some air into it so it would pop up and uh, like a balloon type thing and came up with. When I saw that in the theater, the audience really gets a jump out of that. <laughs> there, there was a lot of popcorn flying in the air on that. <laughs> Let's talk more about the specifics on that. So the next part of that is the uh, blood hits the floor and the blood drop starts moving around. Oh they, yeah, that- we set that up. It's really such a, a great iconic moment there that you, you don't expect, you know, you, you expect to see something splatter on the floor, but the fact that it now apparently of its own volition runs around. Um, right. Was a, it was a great uh, concept. Yeah, what we did on that, uh, once again, something weird that's moving, um, that was actually on about a four foot by four foot piece of plywood that had the, the same flooring on it that we've been seeing throughout the movie and the set. And it had a chair anchored on it. We screwed it down. And um, we tried various things on the surface of that flooring tile. Uh, we ended up with a, a silicone grease that we would put on a thin coat, uh, two or three coats. And then we actually put uh, hair dryers on it to actually thin it down even more and it would kind of harden it a little bit. And um, the camera was on a tripod or sticks and it was anchored to this four foot by four foot table also. So as the blood was moving, that was caused by uh, us tipping the table around and around and around. And the camera is traveling with it. So every, everybody assumes that it's on a hard floor that's not moving, but that the blood is moving. I'm sure that there's other ways to do it nowadays, of course, but that was the one of the front uh, axles from an, uh, an old Oldsmobile car. This was a front wheel drive axle, and we took that, and that was the pivoting mechanism for that table. Yeah, I, we, we had a lot of fun with that one, too. One of the things that we do with actors um, and with characters is that because the majority of what you're looking at in a performance is the eyes, we always include what we call an eye light. It's that little white speck in the eye. If you notice in paintings, you know, there's always this white dot of paint on the eyeball. Um, we use light because it gives life. It allows you to see the eye move and, and uh, you know, understand performance and, and, the, and the emotion. So I had this thought that with the uh, 
the guy who was going to be revealed as the thing to not put in an eye light, to make the eyes dark and dead. And it would be a subtle thing, but you know something that might make you feel a little uneasy about the character. So um, I did that, and if you notice in the sequence, um, he's always got very dark, dead eyes. Well, I never said anything about it until uh, recently, a couple of years ago, and people then notice, say, oh, yeah, well, I never thought of that. That's a little uh, secret that uh, is there. It was hopefully a very subtle clue or, or feeling for the audience about who was going to be revealed. That's amazing because I have always felt the same way about that, but never recognized it, Dean. But there was always something a little bit dark about that guy. And, and, it, and it wasn't so much that it telegraphed the, the reality. It was just enough to kind of make you feel a little uneasy. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I wanted, I wanted it to be subtle as opposed to suddenly, you know, the character starts twitching or doing something yeah. that was very obvious. It was, it was just something that uh, after the fact, people said, oh, and they look back and say, yeah, I never noticed that. I just sort of felt it. And, uh, and I think that's one of the fun things about doing suspense and thrillers and horror films, uh, especially with John, uh, because it's a chance to really affect an audience emotionally with the visual images. Yeah, yeah. So the next we had the uh, Palmer uh, tied up. He starts to react. Robin rigged uh, the Palmer puppet head with uh, solvent uh, that started to swell the foam. And there was bladders in the eyes that popped the eyeballs out. And that thing shaking around. Then we go, we, switch, we cut into the second stage Palmer head, which is fully expanded. We go from that into where the Palmer head splits and a tongue flies out. Yeah, uh, was that in reverse, Ken? I think it was hanging upside down. You know, Dane, didn't you guys shoot that? So the gravity brought the tongue out? Yeah, that was upside down and, and in the yeah, tongue. Yeah, I think we, so. Yeah, we put some, uh, some fish weights in the end of it so that uh, gravity would help us. And that was upside down and then... They have this process called reverse print optical at that time. They shoot it straight forward, and then they, when it gets in the lab, they print it uh, backwards, so to speak. And uh, instead of it going out, it's coming in, <laughs> or vice versa. So then we had the puppet that, uh, the Palmer puppet that opens up with, with teeth, and it smashes the window's head. To remind you, if you haven't seen the movie, Window is another character. He is tied up sitting next to Palmer, therefore yes. suffering the consequences of, uh, of this uh, explosive test. We had a Windows double, and we had the dummy crump down on, the, uh, on that, head, that dummy head. And then we switched over to the mechanical Palmer and Window dummies that are kicking and frailing and breaking the lamps. So Dave, you want to talk about the, how you guys rigged that? That was all on another uh, mechanical rig and uh, some hydraulics involved in that. We had to make parts of that set that would come apart very easily or break away using a thin balsa wood and uh, soft metals like lead, sheeting and things for the lamp and uh, so they could be easily damaged and broken. It was pretty violent. Actually, it seemed like that was wild. 
I think uh, we advised the camera guys to either get some shielding or, or something <laughs> to protect themselves if things decided to uh, fall off of uh, like a boot or something. And uh... so The next part of that uh, is where McCready takes the flamethrower and starts burning up the uh, Palmer character. We, we intercut between the Palmer puppet and a stunt double that was on, caught on fire. And some of that was on stage, and the rest was shot up, I believe, in uh, on location. Ken, was that down on like stage twenty-eight? When uh, I think it uh, actually we caught uh, the stage on fire there. Remember? Yeah, well, for the second part, we come back after and um, and that went over really up. big with the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I know that we uh, he burns up the windows uh, dummy that is all slime. You guys had done the articulation; it was kicking and frailing in the corner. Right. Above the set is a catwalk called Green Beds, which aren't used so much now, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the practical effects guys, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was a propane torch flame shooting thing. And uh, they actually caught those green beds on fire. But I remember Rob saying, keep shooting, keep shooting, keep shooting. (laughs) There's people probably over, over on Bruce's end that are going, don't keep shooting, call the fire department. <laughs> but uh, we actually put the fire out and they put in some new green beds quite quickly and, and uh, moved on. Uh, we're just making friends right and left. <laughs> well, and at that time, Universal had their own fire department. I don't know if they still yeah. but Yeah, I they do. I think with all the fire that we did on the shoot, when we were on stage, we probably had one or more of them on standby anyway to yeah. take care of anything like that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We, we actually, once they torch the Palmer character and he flails a bit and then goes through the wall to the exterior, we did shoot that practical with a, uh, a stuntman. I think his name was Tony Caesar in a complete Nomax suit and so forth. And he was fully engu- engulfed in flame and flailing around before he breaks through the wall. Yeah, his strong uh, trump card in his career was body burns. Tony Cecilia, yeah. he did a great job of just like, I mean, just waiting for uh, people like Bruce and Skid to say cut because we wanted to get in there as quick as possible and put this guy out because it was getting pretty involved with flames. Dean, with all of these various elements coming together to make this scene, talk to me about coordinating between first and second unit. So it's, it's very important for the second unit and the um, first unit to coordinate very carefully with, uh, with lighting and all of the factors so that it isn't obvious to the audience that, you know, they're being di- different places, different times. So um, I always felt it was important to go and visit the second unit if they were on the lot or whatever, just to um, make sure or answer questions about about lighting and what lens size and things like that that we would have used on the first unit to shoot the same shot. But then they have the luxury of time of waiting for, you know, a wire to be stretched or fixed. But it's a first and second unit is a, is a tricky thing to coordinate. And um, we were able to do that pretty well, I think. Well, one of the things that I experience really for the first time on the thing was the use of Steadicam. And I I wanted to really compliment Dean in in watching the film again last night. There there are a lot of uh, moments in the film 
that don't involve creatures. Sometimes they don't even involve any actors, but we're, we're creeping through these long hallways of the compound and so forth. And uh, it just gives such a suspenseful uh, feeling for the audience of like, whose point of view is this? Is this the monster, you know, creeping through the place? You know, what's going to happen? And it was very effectively done and very smoothly done because it was done on Steadicam. It, it was just a beautiful use of that device. Well, thank you very much. The, um, the Steadicam was developed just a little bit before the movie Halloween. And we used it extensively on that. And I think John and, and I realized that it was a great way of moving an audience very smoothly through an environment so it didn't have the obvious look of a camera operator holding the camera on his shoulder because there's always uh, movement and rocking back and forth as he takes steps, you know. So it was a, it was a great way of moving the camera slowly. And I know John was a big fan of Hitchcock. Hitchcock used to use that technique, the, the slowly advancing camera uh, to create the suspense and um, keep the audience wondering where were we going and why. And so John loved that. I loved that. So whenever uh, possible, we would use that. And it was a um, device that uh, allowed us a lot of flexibility in the small stage. The, the uh, set was built with walls that uh, would come out if we needed them, and we did it a few times. But for the most part, we treated the, uh, the set as if it was a real environment, so the Steadicam uh, allowed the audience to creep uh, through the, uh, the set at a very smooth, slow pace. Yeah, there's no way you could have done all those long, long tracking shots on a dolly or anything because you would have seen dolly track in the shot and at the time we didn't have the the means to digitally erase it and exactly and as you said even if the camera had been on a dolly just rolling on the floor i think you still would have felt more movement uh as the dolly went over uneven surfaces than the smoothness that you got from the steadicam yeah the steadicam has become such a great but very used tool to uh so to change some of the vocabulary of the film language that we've all learned to understand as an audience. Yeah, you know, that Steadicam is actually a, an early version of what we call the drone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I would say before we leave the, uh, the shooting on stage, um, it's just kind of important to note that to some degree we had to shoot certain parts of the film in sequence because if you've seen the film, you realize that over the course of time, the set is getting destroyed as we go along. So we had to establish all those areas before anything uh, bad had happened and then work our way sort of systematically through the destruction that occurs in the course of the story. And I think that's an important point, Bruce, and another one of the challenges of a film like this, these various elements, you in time. Now, We've got all of that stage work, but then there's going to be a period of time where we're going out on location and these things need to integrate together very closely. So after about six weeks on stage, I know that the principal photography took a break. Uh, I'm sure that the special makeup effects team was continuing to work through and perhaps some of that second unit work was being done. But all of this was in preparation for the crew to head out to Stewart, British Columbia to do another three weeks of filming on location. 
Bruce, why don't you talk to us some about this period and the transition uh, towards moving up north? As I recall, it was about four weeks after we finished uh, principal photography, where part of the time, probably two days, maybe three days during the week, we would have insert shots, uh, special makeup effects shots to shoot, generally up at the Universal Heartland facility. And then the rest of that time, we were, uh, we were preparing for those shoots, but also for some reason, I guess we had a small office staff or something, but as a DGA trainee, one of the things that I was assigned to do was basically to work with the travel department and book all the crew uh, travel for going up to British Columbia to do the exteriors. Unfortunately for me, at the end of, of setting all that up and, and being on the film throughout the stage work and, and the uh, makeup effects unit, uh, being a, a DGA trainee, the training program rotates trainees periodically. And just at that point where we were scheduled to go up to Stewart, British Columbia to finish the film, the training program told me that I was going to have to rotate and go on to a television series at that point. So I missed out on, on that portion of the shoot. Now that sounds like an extremely complicated and difficult portion, but I just, the, the heartbreak of getting pulled after doing all the work of, of putting it together. You didn't quit, obviously, Bruce, but I think that must have been difficult. It was. It was. It was, you know, a, a project that I really enjoyed working on and, and wanted to see it you know, through to the very end. And unfortunately that wasn't going to happen. Well, fortunately we do have Dean who was there for that portion of the shoot. So we can hear more about it. Uh, Dean, you and I talked earlier about how these sets were built, the kind of pre-work that had to go into getting everything set before you guys even showed up. We knew we were going to be shooting in an area that was supposedly and in reality, completely covered with snow, Rocky Mountains, a glacier just below the valley. So um, while we were at the uh, at Universal, the art department and then the uh, construction crew was up in Stewart, British Columbia. And the, the spot they had chosen was up on this cliff with a great view, as you um, have seen from the movie, was up a uh, dirt road that led from the small completely, uh, I guess, a town that was the Old West. It was a small town, it had a couple hotels, it had quite a lot of bars because it, it served the crew from the mine up at the top of this long, windy dirt road. So we were, uh, once again, really isolated. And um, so they went up to this um, great location and on the rocky ground, they built the compound. And then when it snowed in, um, you know, they were on a solid footing, but also um, it looked completely natural. We didn't have to do any creating of snow. One of the things that we did, that uh, the, the production did, was they were careful to create all of the environments, the sets, the everything we did in reality. And uh, I think it paid off because I know when they did the sequel, they took an easier way. They built the compound actually in a parking lot, I believe, with a big giant green screen so they could put in the mountains and the snow and everything. I think the, the film we did, there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, subtlety about thinking and realizing you're in a real environment of snow and mountains and everything. 
and it also helped with uh, all of the uh, the crew. We were working under the same conditions that the characters uh, presumably were doing. So it, it affected everything we did and thought and and how how we used the camera and, and um, so forth. Well, but speaking of the camera, then you had the additional challenges of being in these freezing temperatures. I had heard that we were going to be at uh, freezing and below freezing temperatures. So I went to Panavage and the camera company and I said, so uh, we're doing extensive work dialogue and all the usual stuff, not just like second unit grabbing some shots, but a whole thing up in this very, very cold, arduous environment. What should we do? And they said, well, we need to winterize the cameras. So they took the, um, the cameras and they changed the lubricants of all the moving parts to freezing capable grease and oil and so forth. We had a heated barney, uh, in other words, a little envelope that that went around the camera and it kept the camera above freezing. Uh, it was still get cold. And then one of the other artifacts is that when it's very cold and film unwinds from the, uh, the feed roll, goes through the camera and winds up on the take-up roll, that there's this weird artifact of static electricity as the film pulls away from itself. And you can see um, it looks like a lightning storm, sparks and dirt and, and so forth. And it can ruin the, um, the shot or the whole roll if, if that's the case. So we had to have these heated um, you know, envelopes over the film roll, the uh, magazine, that would um, keep the uh, film above freezing so that we didn't have any static electricity. And then, of course, there was an awful lot of consideration about how do we actually move in the snow. And there was an interesting uh, discovery, you might say, up there. The set was built so that we could actually use it to a certain extent. There were some heated rooms that were our our lunch room. And there was one area that was the camera equipment and prep room. And the guys would, uh, you know, we would shoot. And then they would bring the cameras in maybe during lunch or, or even just for a break. And they would take the equipment and set it up and they move things and lenses and all that. Well, what they discovered was that when they would come into the heated room where they stored the camera equipment, that condensation would form on the lenses, not just on the front surface, but also inside. And you couldn't use the lens because it would all be blurry. So the, uh, the camera crew had to take out all the windows from the uh, room uh, so that it would be the same temperature as outside. There would be no warming up, no condensation would form. So the camera crew never really got a, a break from, of going in for warmth because as they went in to work on equipment, it was the same temperature as outside. But uh, of course, it saved uh, a lot of shots because um, there was no blurriness to it. And you didn't lose any of these crew members due to these temperatures, or you had enough of a team to rotate people in and out? Well, oddly enough, when we were working um, on the set, everybody watched everybody. I wore a red toque, a red furry hat, so that uh, I would stick out because everybody wore the same parkas and stuff. And a couple guys had color coding so I could find them. When we wrapped, we had to leave Stuart and go down to, uh, I think we flew out of Vancouver, 
so we would get on this bus and it was this old school bus. There was nothing comfortable about it because that's all they could find up there. So when we wrapped the crew and we loaded up and began the journey of about eight hours and it was at night. So we, um, we all got on the bus and we were chattering away and pretty soon you'd notice somebody lean up against the window and, and everybody would go to sleep. And then uh, we would stop and, you know, so that we could relieve ourselves. So we would all go to a different tree outside the bus and then climb back on the bus and head further down. And at one of the stops, we all went out and then came back in and we started driving and started driving. And then I said, wait a second, where's Ray Stella, the camera operator? And everyone said, well, I think he's up. No, he's not there. Oh, oh, he's not. And we said, oh my gosh, I think we left Ray out in the middle of nowhere in the, you know, the British Columbia wilderness. So we turned around and went back and sure enough, there he was standing in the road trying to figure out, he said later, how he was going to get to civilization because he thought at first as the bus was driving away, he said, oh, those guys, they're, they're teasing me. Wait, there it goes further down the road. Oh, they're, going, they're really teasing me. They're coming back any second now. And they, we went around the corner and he said, they're going to re- Uh-oh. And he realized that we were gone and he was stuck in the middle of the wilderness. And it was fortunate that uh, I had wondered where he was because um, he would probably still be up there uh, being eaten by wolves. <laughs> uh, buddy system, right? For using the bathroom, apparently, is uh, oh, sure yeah. part of it. I'm thinking to the safety regs now, Dean. Um, <laughs> Dean, one more sequence about that you guys shot in Stewart that I want to ask about, and that is in for the finale, you guys destroyed the set. Did we ever? We knew that that was going to be, you know, the ending of the movie, and um, you know, guy, the physical effects guy, who's the head of that, was uh, Roy Arbogast, and he he was very good at blowing things up. So the set had been built so that it would blow up realistically, you know, so that you would see a lot of timbers flying and, and all of that, knowing that that was going to happen. So I had always been interested in blowing things up. Wait a second, maybe I shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> but how the effects guys do it, so I could understand where we could put cameras and, and the risks and all. So I said that, and Roy said, oh, okay, well, here, come with me. So as he was rigging the set, he'd say, okay, so here's a 55-gallon drum. We're going to put a couple of gallons of gasoline in it and then a black powder bomb. And then over here, we're putting some uh, primer cord for some high explosive. That'll cut apart this part of the building, and then a mortar will blow it apart. And he went, went through the whole thing. And as I was watching, I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be really good. So then um, we were ready to go, and we had multiple cameras. Um, I don't remember how many, five or so at least. And we set them up quite a distance away. We set up a couple close that we um, sandbagged and protected. But um, a lot of it we, we just set up so that the, uh, it would be the most picturesque effect and destruction. Then that night, we said, okay, and we're ready. There was a guy who started the camera that had been sandbagged, and he ran. And the rest of us were across the uh, little valley different cameras, different places. And um, when he said, okay, here we go, and we rolled, and then he punched the button, or several buttons, and 
it was the most amazing explosion I had ever witnessed that was, of course, deliberate. You know, the gasoline flew and flames and destruction. And, and when it was over, it was, um, you know, everybody looked at each other and said, well, that's probably the only time we'll ever see that deliberately. It was an amazing um, moment, you know, and, and I think it really sold what happened to the camp and the fact that there were only two guys left after that. And the thing had been completely destroyed or had it. <laughs> well, in coming back from Stuart, we've concluded principal photography, of course, and as a continuing theme, the special makeup effects work continues unabated. There's one sequence that we remiss not to discuss, and this was done without actors, and that's about the Blair monster puppet. Ken, why don't you introduce that for us? Well, this is one of the last effects that we shot. It was a major undertaking uh, that required that makeup and the make mechanical effects work very closely together in designing and engineering this big, massive undertaking. This big, huge sculpture, we had to figure out how we're going to dissect it and how we're going to mold it and then reassemble it. So one of the first steps was that Dave's uh, guys had to make an armature to put to support this sculpture. And this armature had to allow the arm to be pulled off and mold it separately. It had to allow for all these different areas to be disassembled and then reassembled. So the original design was uh, Rob had worked closely with Mentor, Mentor about the uh, to get the design they were going for, and then we sat about and figured this out for weeks before we even started. Dave, you want to jump in on this? That was the last big shot, wasn't it, Ken? That we did. Yeah, it was yeah. the last big shot. Yeah. We had, as I recall, 63 people, puppeteers, we'll call them, operating the many different movements and actions of this character. It was on a platform. We had people underneath that platform that had hardly room to breathe. The only visual effect or optic piece that I recall in the show was at that time, and that was Bill Taylor uh, put up a process screen. I think at that time, the blue screens were more popular than the green, but there we spent hours and hours getting that ready and a long time to shoot it, but everything had to work and it was a one-time thing. And I remember one stretch, I was up 36 hours straight. Ken, was that on that or was that? I know that happened several times. <laughs> <laughs> All those times start to blur together when you're up that long, yeah. I remember the fact that there was, I think it was that shot, that sequence, where something didn't work right. And um, I think Rob said, here, let me fix it. We waited and we waited. I went to sleep. Yeah. Most everyone took a nap. We were up all night yeah. waiting until um, it got fixed. And then we went back and um, shot another take. That's Fortunately, right. it worked. John Carpenter and uh, Larry Franco and, I, and, and Dean and some other victims, uh, they had, to, I think they brought in some house trailers and they would sleep and they would wake up. And, Can we do it now? No, a little bit more. <laughs> Our time cards were so confusing and elaborate that the people at Universal that in the payroll office, they couldn't calculate uh, how much to pay us because it was 
all these different payroll rules and contracted rules and everything like that. It was elaborate. Um, uh, that was 38 years ago. And uh, Ken and I <laughs> looked at our paychecks that week and he beat me by $12, as I recall. <laughs> but but uh, we were at like $3,600 that week. And that was 38 years ago. So you can imagine what it would be today. It was, okay. it was the second to the last thing we shot. Right. The okay. last thing we shot was the dog head peeling apart. Yeah. This was the second thing. It was the most elaborate. Had so many moving parts. It had the Blair face that was articulated. Then we had the jaw sticking <laughs> out of the side with the big teeth that was articulated. We had the arm that was articulated. We had the dog sliding out of the stomach that was articulated. Uh, and that had to be reset and being able to open up again. That took a lot of research to figure out how to make that happen so that you could disguise the scene for take two. Uh, there were so many people with fire extinguishers in, with slime. Uh, Rob got in. He was operating the dog that comes out of the stomach. And uh, he was covered in trash bags to get in the, into the back of the body. And I guess for some reason, one of the nozzles got twisted a little bit and uh, Rob got slimed, <laughs> even though he was covered with this trash bag. Gee, I can't imagine who would have turned that <laughs> nozzle. They had to get this shot, they, uh, the last shot. They wanted to go home. They wanted to, to get this into the editors. They wanted to be done with it. And they brought in mattresses. I'm telling you, like a couple dozen mattresses. And they were all over the hallways in this big building, this old abandoned building. And people were sleeping for 20 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever. I remember you could not walk down the hallway without asking people to move and, and stepping on their mattress. And everything. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. It was a, I think that was before OSHA came to force or something. <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah, interesting. And tell me more about the challenges of uh, actually getting this to work. Well, I think I, I touched on them briefly about the uh, just how do all things have to come together. So many moving parts that had to be figured out how to assemble this, how to create it so it can come apart and then come back together again. It was a big challenge for us to run that massive quantity of foam latex to fill this torso. We were doing major, uh, I think we had like five, five gallon uh, mixers going to fill up this cavity uh, with these big, huge syringes. And then those molds had to be put in the, in the oven and, and baked. It was so many different areas that stuff that had never been done before. And I, you know, it, it was, it really showed how we could work so closely together as a team from these different departments and make this thing come together. And I was very pleased with the results. One of the things that impressed me about the project, and as I look back on it, was the fact that there were so many dedicated people who were interested in doing stuff that hadn't been done before for a, uh, a movie. It was kind of um, disappointing at first when it wasn't a big box office hit because it was so far ahead of its time. But here we are, you know, how many, 38 years later or whatever, talking about it. And I get um, a tremendous amount of film students and young people who, who come up to me and say, oh, it's one of my favorite movies. And, and I know that they weren't even alive then. Um, you know, so <laughs> to, to have it last in popularity and 
and be recognized of all the work that we did is now, uh, you know, very satisfying uh, compared to, um, you know, our fears at the beginning. I'd like to comment about what Dean just said about everybody working together and the dedication and on and on. There was one scene back on the stage, this creature, whatever it is, rips all the floorboards out of, uh, up. And Ken, what, remember they had to have the hand in this guy's face? Yes, and, on a Muppet. Yeah, and dragging this body. Well, that was me dragging <laughs> that body on, on camera. And, uh, you, you know, it was like, oh, who's not doing anything? I, I said, well, everybody's doing something, but I'm, I'm just kind of making sure that uh, it's getting done. Well, you're the right size, this and that, put this wardrobe on and uh, put the, <laughs> and it was, that, that was a tough drag, Ken. It was not easy. <laughs> I remember you struggling. Yeah. I, I hope your residuals are still coming in. <laughs> no, no, no residuals, no, no sag, no nothing. I'm uh, just down here in the, uh, in the basement again. <laughs> you know, I want to follow up on that issue of the film's legacy and the fact that, uh, Dean, as you mentioned, it was not well-received in its initial theatrical release. Both uh, the audience numbers were low and critics were rather harsh, but over time, the film is now recognized as a classic and your work is appreciated. But what is that like for crew? Are you able to separate the audience and critical reaction at the time, knowing that you did such amazing work and that be enough? Or is that difficult to kind of handle that response? I think that uh, and anytime you're working on a film, you, you know, you tell yourself, oh, this is either going to be great, the audience is going to love it, or you come to the realization, oh, this, this is a turkey. But most of the time, you work on a film to the very best of your ability. You always try to bring something to a film that is better than had been done before or is your very best work. As I always tell uh, film students and stuff, one of the rules when you start working is you always give 110%. You always approach it as if it's going to be um, an important classic film or an important message, whatever. So, um, you know, it's disheartening. A lot of times the, uh, the crew, the, the Grips and Electric, they don't follow the box office as much. Um, and they're used to working on good films and bad films. So it doesn't affect you as much as if you are one of the creative people people who have been doing things that have never been done before, and you're trying to make a, uh, an impression with the film. So it's a little disheartening when it doesn't, you know, take off. But, you know, it's, it's rewarding over a period of time uh, when a film, uh, you know, it, I mean, it happened with Halloween. You know, it was the very first horror thriller slasher film, it's sort of called now. But the first week, not too many people showed up and everyone said, oh, okay, I guess not. But the second week, more people did. The third week, more people did. And it became a classic. The same with The Thing. You know, people look back at it now and they don't really appreciate sometimes the fact that there were 63 guys underneath that platform pulling on wires. They just said, oh, that was cool. And to know that you were part of a... Um, new techniques, new storytelling and all, and that eventually all of the effort and creativity that you put into it is appreciated. You know, it's, it's one of those 
things that's uh, that's rewarding about what we do. You know, the fact that the film stays around or has the potential to stay around years later. You know, it's a, a very satisfying kind of uh, feeling to know that your work has been appreciated. Well, speaking of the work that all of you did and the extended crew, you guys have mentioned several times about how much fun this was. But to a T, the stories you've told make this sound really hard. And so I just want to talk a little bit about the general atmosphere on set. How did the crew hold up? How did the actors hold up under these conditions and and trying to capture the, the, the challenges of this movie? I just recall the camaraderie and, and uh, I felt like the actors were all in, in pretty good spirits and they felt like they were the part of, a part of something that was going to be cool and interesting and sort of cutting edge at the time. And uh, I, I thought the attitudes from the actors in general were, were really good and they really enjoyed being together and working together. In general, uh, my crew experience was was similar for the most part. Some days were long, but everybody uh, was enjoying the, uh, the the project that we were working on and thinking it was going to be something special. I agree. Um, I remember we had been invited to, uh, univer uh, to from Universal Studios to go see a rough cut of the Norris sequence at the Alfred Hill Theater, and I remember coming out of there and I was walking with Vince Prentice and Art Pimentel, and I told him, hey guys, I don't know how anybody's gonna ever top this. And it was at that point I realized we are doing something special. We're not a bunch of guys making monsters in our garages anymore. This is a whole <laughs> different level. Looking back, it was one, some of the best times in my life. You know, it all started with the wild imagination of the 22-year-old Rob Routine. And I just want to thank him for bringing me on. I would have to concur that a lot of times on the set, you get into a routine, the guys, uh, or the, the electric crew and the grip crew and the camera crew, they, they realize they're doing something they've done before. They get a request uh, to do some task, to set a light somewhere or whatever. And a lot of times they say, well, you know, it would be easier if, but on this, the general feeling was by watching all of this brilliant work that you guys were doing, the dedication, everybody on the show, but Rob Boutina especially, it, uh, everyone reacted to that. They knew they were looking at and being a part of something that was different and new. And um, on this show, it was like people would watch and see and figure out that, yes, we had to do it that way because it was best for the mechanical and, and makeup effects that were happening, the, the story that was being told, the, uh, the whole crew felt they were contributing to uh, something unique. You know, I've been an assistant director now for decades and have done other movies and a lot of television, but when I meet somebody for the first time, if they've looked at my resume or my IMDb, it's almost always the thing that uh, they want me to talk about because it's just become such an iconic uh, favorite film of a lot of people. Yeah. That brings us right around to where this podcast got started. So I want to, <laughs> I want to thank all you guys for your time on this. I really enjoyed talking about this film credit to your work. And uh, I hope our, our listeners have gained some, some new insights. Thank you very much guys for being here. Today. Thank you. Our pleasure. 
And with that two-parter, season six is underway. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed these first two episodes as much as I have. This season, we'll be looking behind the scenes of films and television shows, both modern and classic, serious and whimsical. We'll continue to discuss current developments as the industry responds to the ongoing pandemic. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Your feedback is always welcome and greatly appreciated. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us reach new listeners. And if you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials and podcasts below the line. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at podbelowtheline. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Be safe out there. Hope to see everyone again soon. The last ask I'll have before I'll let you guys go is almost sort of a teaser. A buddy of mine from the fifth and sixth grade, we bonded over Big Trouble in Little China. And so I don't want to go deep on it, but I know that Bruce accepted. You guys worked on that film as well. Can you guys give me some kind of teaser anecdote I hadn't worked with John for a while, and um, then apparently um, he was invited to do this kind of a big studio production, Big Trouble in Little China. And um, he asked if I'd be interested. I said, well, of course, why not? And what was fascinating was working at 20th Century Fox Studios, but also with uh, John Lloyd, who was really an extremely experienced production designer. He had um, set designs and on set effects that were fascinating, you know, so I remember an awful lot of um, little uh, insights and stuff into that that would be uh, fun to talk about someday.